So we're, we're going to go back and look at uh, the last two verses in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. And uh, once again, this is, uh, everything should be viewed in context, but I can't go over everything every week. So I will encourage you guys, even those of you that are here, go to our YouTube. I have a 2 a Corinthians playlist, which has all of the Bible studies that we've done so far in 2 Corinthians. So you can kind of back up, back up, back up and catch up. Um, but uh, right now, the Apostle Paul is contrasting the earthly with the eternal, the, the temporal uh, with that which uh, lasts, right? So um, he says in chapter 17, as we look not to the things which are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, that is temporary, passing away, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And as I made the case last week, actually, that's, what is that? That's, uh, that's actually chapter, what is that? Verse 19, is that? Yeah, that is 18. That is 18. But I wanted to, actually, I'm sorry. I wanted to back up one more verse. I wanted to back up to verse 17. So we're going to hit that verse. I'm glad I read it, but let's back up one more verse to verse 17. For this light and momentary affliction, that's, this is the ESV, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. So I talked about the, the three crowns last week that are spoken of. Uh, James speaks of the crown of life, uh, as does John in, in Revelation uh, the Apostle Paul speaks of the crown of righteousness uh, in 2 Timothy 4.8. And Peter speaks of the crown of glory. And so this is this idea, right, of um, a weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. And then I mentioned to you at the conclusion last week that uh, the 24 elders in Revelation chapter 4 uh, have crowns and they cast their crowns at the feet of Jesus. You and I don't have anything that we can give to God, right? Everything that we have comes from him and it's based on grace. It's, it's kind of like um, many of us in this room, maybe uh, most of us in this room uh, have had children and Christmas is, yeah, I, I hate to tell you, but it's coming up, Right. And when they were little, your kids want to get you a Christmas gift. Where do they get the money to get you a Christmas gift? That's right. They get it from you. Give me money. Now I'm going to go buy you a gift with your money. And yet, you know, you love that, right? You love that they care about you and whatever. Um, and certainly they can, you know, they can make you something as well. But for this analogy, anything that you would give to God, you're just giving back to him right? Every good and perfect gift comes from the father of lights in whom there's no shifting shadow. Everything you have, he gave you. Even what you work for, your health, your skill, your talent, everything ultimately comes from God or you'd have no ability to do anything for anyone, right? So that's this idea. We receive a crown um, and then, you know, it is that which we can give back to God. Now, what I wanted to point out when it says that our light and momentary affliction, affliction, it may not seem light, 
And in fact, as I mentioned last week with, you know, with my afflictions, it may not seem momentary. It may not, it may seem from an earthly perspective, like your affliction just never ends. You know, our, our young friend, Jacob, who's not here this week, um, is dealing with some difficulties again. And uh, he just wants to get back to normal and he keeps having to deal with all of this. So I'm certain that for Jacob, that doesn't seem to be momentary. It seems to be ongoing. But you have to prepare, you have to compare, not prepare, compare what is happening now with eternity. That's nothing, right? A hundred years, you may live to be a hundred and I hope you do, but that's nothing compared to eternity, right? So it's momentary and it's light because after all, it's not hell, right? Um, It's not ending your life. It's not destroying you. So by comparison, it's light, right? So this light and momentary affliction, what is pressing down on you, right, is creating or making or preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, I think that it is interesting that the Apostle Paul used the term weight um, when he said glory because um, that is the meaning of one of the Hebrew words for glory. Now, if you've been in certain churches and certain uh, Christian traditions, you may have heard to, heard of, excuse me, the Shekinah glory. Have you heard of this word? Shekinah glory, right? And Shekinah is, is this, it's shining, it's bright, it's beautiful. But a word that is used, I think, more often in the Old Testament and translated glory is the word kabod. Not Shekinah, shining, but kabod. And it means weight, right? So we understand this in English. Um, think of uh, think of a person who who has uh, a lot of authority or respect. We might say that that person has gravitas. Have you heard this word? Okay, they walk into the room and everybody goes, "Oh, they have gravitas." Gravitas, gravity, weight, okay? Well, just think of something that is valuable, was valuable in the ancient world, still valuable today, gold. Gold is heavy, isn't it? Okay, it has weight. It's, and so when we say, <laughs> you know, I've, I've, I've used this expression before, but in the 60s and early 70s, uh, you know, the hippies, when something would really hit them, they would say, Man, that's heavy. That's really heavy. Believe it or not, that's the same idea, right? Gravitas, heavy, weight, meaningful, okay? Um, Kabod means heaviness, burden, riches, reputation, importance, splendor, distinction, honor. So, you know, that's what we're going for, right? Um, in uh, Eastern religions, there is this, uh, this idea of karma. Have you, have you heard of karma? Okay. 
we, we misunderstand karma. They believe in um, reincarnation, right? Uh, they believe in samsara. They believe <clears throat> that uh, there's a never-ending cycle of existence. And whatever you do in this life is either adding good or bad karma to you. Now, I'm not advocating this. I'm illustrating with this, okay? So the idea of bad karma, dark karma, is like adding a, a negative value to you, right? It is, is, is pushing you down and away. The result would be that when you came back, when you were reincarnated, you would be a lower life form. I mean, you could end up being a cockroach, okay? Um, and uh, the, the lighter karma, the good karma, means that you would be reincarnated as a higher life form. You could be reincarnated as a god. Now, again, I'm using this as an illustration, and I'm helping you to understand. So people that, you know, something happens to someone, and they're like, oh, yeah, that's karma. No, it's not. If it happens in this lifetime, it is not karma. It is consequences. That's where the, the, the Christian worldview works. And this uh, idea of samsara, um, reincarnation and so forth does not work. Um, what you do matters. It has earthly and eternal consequences. But I use the idea of karma because you're adding something to yourself that has a result. Well, this idea of an eternal weight of glory while the Eastern idea of dark karma is that it is, heavy, it is heavy and it weighs you down and pulls you to a lower existence, this idea is that as you suffer in this life and entrust your souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right, then you are preparing an eternal weight of glory, okay? That is beyond all comparison. There's nothing else that you can compare, all right? Then let's go to the other verse. As we looked not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So in today's passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 says, we walk by faith and not by sight. So faith is is the eye into the spiritual. Faith is the eye that penetrates the temporal into the eternal, okay? And so that's what we see right here. Um, are you taken up with, absorbed with, distracted by temporal things? You know, you would assume that as we get older, we would figure out, you know what? This is not gonna last. I better be getting ready for eternity. But I don't really always see that. Sometimes I see older people who are distracted by things that are even less significant, like their next meal, like whether their cable is working or not, okay? Uh, you know, bless these folks. I'm not trying to be hateful and judgmental, but as I get older, I'm exhausted by this world. You know, I look at all the nice things and when I was younger, oh, I want one of those. I want one of those. I want one of those. Um, a uh, 
a member of our church came by today and uh, um, they uh, just got a Tesla. Man, I've always wanted one of those. And so, you know, I went out there and I looked at her Tesla and it's like this beautiful white, you know, and, and you know, the, the minimalist Tesla design and so forth. And, you know, I looked in there and uh, would I like a Tesla? Sure, I, but I don't have anywhere to charge it. So that's, that's my big problem. But in the end, I don't even care. Like I like my truck. I, it's more than I deserve, okay? Uh, when gas prices went up, I thought, you know what, I'm gonna sell this. It's worth way more than what I paid for it um, because everybody wants trucks right now and all this other stuff. But the Lord just keeps impressing me with, I, I just need to keep it, you know? And so I just keep it. So I look at, you know, I'm just using that. These are examples, right? It could be a car, it could be a house, it could be a piece of technology. I'm addicted to technology, quite frankly. Um, you know, I want the latest, greatest Apple computer and phone and watch and all of these sorts of things. But in the end, it just, it doesn't matter. What is temporal doesn't matter. It all wears out right? The nicest things that you have wear out. Your body wears out, okay? So we have to have eyes into the eternal. We look to the things that are not seen. The things that are seen are temporary. The things that are unseen are eternal, okay? Let's go to chapter 5. This is chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, that's your body, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, that's your resurrected body, eternal in the heavens. Verse 2, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. Okay, so let's look at this phrase. The tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, right? Uh, I had a, uh, a friend that called me today that is preparing me for the possibility of doing, a, officiating a funeral for uh, someone that she knows who is in hospice and is going to pass away. And uh, she would like, she thinks that this person would, you know, like someone would prefer someone like me to do the funeral because I'm going to preach the gospel. What all of us need to realize wherever we are, age-wise, health-wise, is that this is a tent, okay? Think about a tent. It wears out, doesn't it? Okay? I mean, you know, we would think of a, a camping tent, but... In the Old Testament times, there were many people that lived in tents out on the desert, okay? They moved around, they pulled up stakes. That that idea of pulling up stakes, that's the idea that comes from living in tents, right? Because you stake down those cables that hold the tent up. You pull up stakes, you fold up the tent, you move somewhere else. But tents wear out, right? Now, there are buildings, Europe is far older uh, as far as 
uh, civilization is concerned than the United States. And there are castles, there are buildings over there that are thousands or hundreds and a thousand, maybe even a thousand and a half years old. There are remnants in Britain of Roman civilization from 2000 years ago. Uh, we don't have anything like that over here. I mean, we have some Native American uh, uh, developments and so forth. But, you know, if you build something of stone, man, it really lasts, right? But you know what? It still doesn't last forever, does it? Because you look at those old castles and most of them are just remnants. You look at the cathedrals, right? In the Middle Ages, um, Christianity was central in Europe. Not anymore. They're a bunch of foolish Marxists is what they are. Marxism has failed all over the world, and yet people are continually drawn to it like a moth to a flame. It's the stupidest thing in the world. And yet the lie of the government taking care of you is something that draws people in again and again and destroys their prosperity again and again. And of course, we have all of these foolish younger people in our country that are drawn to the same foolishness because they have no sense of history. They don't look at history. But the reality is capitalism, socialism, communism, cathedrals, castles, systems, buildings, it all wears out. It all wears out, okay? That's why we have to have our, our connection to our hand on an eternal God, okay? Um, it says the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed. So your body is temporary, you know? Just like a tent, you move about. Eventually, your body is gonna be no more. In 100 years, nobody in this room will be alive. I can guarantee you that. A child that was born within the last several years could still be alive, but not for very long. So I met um, our latest little life well baby, uh, born to Leo and Cynthia. His name is Roman. They're going to call him Romy. And he has more hair than me. It's depressing, right? He may be alive in 100 years but none of us will be, his parents won't be. We need to reconcile ourselves to the reality that this is not permanent, right? So the Catholics and um, certain other denominations believe in purgatory, this idea that you're gonna go somewhere and suffer and burn off your sins. And it's nonsense, it's not taught in scripture, but if you wanna have this concept of purgatory, it's here, it's right now. That's what you're going through now. You may think you're going through hell right now, but it's really not hell. Hell is far worse. This is just a purgatorial experience. I tell people all the time, um, this is boot camp for eternity, right? When soldiers go through boot camp, they suffer. Man, they deal with it. Uh, you know, those drill sergeants scream at them and make them do exercises and make them run with their packs on and all this. But the purpose is to make them into soldiers, Everything you're going through now is preparation for eternity. The question is, will you cave in under the pressure, right? Or will you rise to the occasion? Well, with the resurrected Christ within us, we can rise to the occasion. So it says the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed. The Greek word for destroyed 
is the same used when referencing Jesus' statement, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. That's what Jesus said about his body. Okay, same thing. It is, this word for destroyed in Greek, is the word Paul used in Galatians when he said, if I rebuild what I have destroyed, I prove myself a transgressor. He's talking about his old nature. The apostle was referring to the possibility of returning to a life apart from Christ, whether that be legalism or license. It is the word also, this word destroyed, that Paul used in Romans when speaking about giving offense by eating meat sacrificed to idols. He said, do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. Tear down. Do not destroy the work of God. So again, it's tearing something down, right? Um, It is the word Jesus used when he denied that he came to abolish. He said, I did not come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. All right. He says to replace this tent that is going to be destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. Well, this is the resurrected body. That's what's waiting for you. It's promised to every person who is in Christ, the same Jesus who is the firstborn from among the dead. It is not made with hands. Therefore, it is not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of the will of God. That's John 1, 13. It will not be born in a mother's body. We will receive our new bodies in their mature state. So when we get to the other side, and we receive a resurrected body, we don't start over as babies, thankfully, right? That would be exhausting in my opinion, okay? Um, This new body will be eternal, will never die again. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever uh, believes in me will never die. Whoever lives in, excuse me, whoever uh, believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. This resurrected body is in the heavens. This is in God's space, the dimensions beyond our world. Therefore, the resurrected body will not be bound by our spatiotemporal existence. Our new bodies will not be subject to entropy, right? That is the, the dissolution of matter and energy. Nor can anyone or anything on earth harm them. That's really, really good news. Nobody can get at that new life that the Lord has offered you. So we fear no one. We don't fear anything that can harm this body because this body is only temporary. It's going to pass away, right? So you're either going to be healed or this body is going to be pass, pass away and you're going to be permanent, you're going to be permanently healed. Um, Jesus said, don't fear the person or the entity, or the, you know, spiritual, demonic, whatever, that can kill the body. Don't fear anyone that can kill the body, but fear the person that can destroy both body and soul in hell. I have a rather extensive um, account of Polycarp when he was martyred, and I don't know if we'll get to it this, uh, this week, but uh, it, would, uh, it would be an example of this. He said, for in this tent that is in this body, we groan longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Well, the question is, do you look forward to the next life? 
or do you just look forward to your next meal? Are you yearning for that resurrected life, resurrection life, or are you quite at home down here? Do you have real hope for a resurrected body? Do you groan because you desire to move from your current physical state to that glorious one? When we're younger, it's hard to imagine this, right? Our bodies have so much energy and there's so much promise and so much hope out in front of us. Um, And not everybody that's younger, but I think that's more of a tendency. These days when I wake up and I have more energy and I'm not tired, I'm like, oh, I forgot how this feels. Wow, this is great. You'd feel like this every day. That would be awesome. That's what it was like to be young. I remember that. Those of you that are still young, just wait. (laughs) All right. He said, if indeed by putting it away, we may not be found naked. I think this is the idea of a disembodied existence, right? I think many people have the idea that, you know, once they die, they're going to go on, you know, to eternity and they're going to sort of be like angels or ghosts or some ephemeral nebulous being that sort of floats about, right? But doesn't have any real substance. Well, when you and I inevitably take leave of this temporary physical body, we will be clothed with immortality. Um, As we've previously learned from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, immortality is a gift for those that put their faith in Christ. Now, I know there are plenty of preachers and teachers that would say, you are an eternal being. It just matters where you'll spend eternity. But I don't think scripture teaches that. God gives eternal life as a gift. God is the only... um, intrinsically, if you will, inherently immortal, eternal being. He gives that gift to those that believe in him. Now, if you subscribe to hell as eternal conscious torment, you also have to affirm that God is going to have to keep you in that torment for eternity. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said in the first Corinthian letter. First Corinthians 1553, for this perishable, this perishable body must put on the imperishable. Think about perishable foods. What does that mean? I just threw away a bunch of vegetables from the crisper up there. Sadly, Jin, I found a piece of watermelon that I had not finished and eaten. And so I had to throw that away. I, shame on me that I forgot about it and didn't eat it. I had some uh, celery in there and it was kind of like all wilty, right? Um, You know what I've noticed is uh, milk is very perishable, isn't it? But interestingly, when you get milk that is organic, uh, when you get certain types, they they last, last longer. Like, have you noticed half and half, you can just like leave it out of the refrigerator? Right? I had somebody, I don't know why, but somebody bought some whipping cream, some whole cream. And I just left it out of there and it was fine. But you know what? Even that eventually gets rotten, right? Nothing worse than rotten milk, is there? Have you ever just, you know, have you ever poured that into your glass? You, you thought it was good and it went blah, 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 blah. 
And then that smell wafts up and you're like, oh, no, 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 right? That's perishable. All of that's perishable. It all passes away. It all rots. That's us. This perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come about the uh, come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that... In the Lord, your labor is not in vain. So um, as we will be reminded shortly in this very chapter, everyone will be judged. Unbelieving, unrighteous people will be raised from death in order to stand before God in judgment, but they are not given the gift of eternal life. Those who stand before the throne apart from Christ do not have the same resurrected bodies as those who follow Christ. You'll find this in Revelation 20, 11 through 15. In the end, they are consigned to eternal destruction, the lake of fire, hell. We who believe in Christ are clothed with a robe of righteousness, which comes from him. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 61, 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And then in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That is the same idea as this robe of righteousness. Those who do not believe in Christ will stand unclothed, as it were, before the terrifying great white throne where the almighty God sits. Once again, you'll find this in Revelation 20. These will be judged by their works, not by the, uh, the grace of God that came through the uh, death and resurrection of Christ. Um, we who believe in Jesus will be judged prior to that by Christ, who is also our defense. We will be rewarded for the good we've done and forgiven for the evil we've done. And again, this is in 1 Corinthians 5.10. We'll get there, perhaps not this week. Our punishment before entering heaven will be his disappointment. Our reward will be his well-done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the scripture writes, For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. That's why I think it is so very important for us to realize that we're not talking about a disembodied existence. We're not talking about, uh, you know, the many uh, becoming, you know, one with the, you know, with God in the sense that we just all become one entity being, we're depersonalized. No, uh, we will be individual persons. We will be living in resurrected bodies. 
We will be in the presence of God perpetually. We will be in a sinless, painless world, but we will not be disembodied. We will not, not be uh, unclothed without a body. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, right? So we're looking forward to an eternity. We are, excuse me, we're not looking forward to an eternity apart from the body as the Stoics, Platonists, and Gnostics believed. These were all ancient philosophical schools. You will not be a disembodied spirit floating in the heavens forever. Believers in the risen Christ will be clothed in a body like their Savior and Lord. Indeed, uh, we shall shuffle off this mortal coil, a phrase you often hear in funerals, but we are not left as unclothed spirits, even spirits reborn by the Holy Spirit, right? And we are reborn by the Holy Spirit, but we're not going to just have a merely spiritual existence if we consider that or understand that to be an, a disembodied existence. So already we're partially clothed with immortality because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. That's why he says that uh, the Holy Spirit is a, a down payment, if you will, of what is to come. He's given us new life. However, we're going to be further clothed when we finally take off this mortal body and put on the immortal body God has prepared for those who believe. Verse five, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us his spirit as a guarantee. There it is. The spirit is the down payment. So how do you know you're going to be raised? Our Calvinist friends would say, well, you know, you don't know whether you're chosen or not. But faith affords us that knowledge. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, right? Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the, it's the same word translated differently, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is knowing. Do you believe? or not. Faith is offered you as an opportunity. You need to grab a hold of it. You need to exercise it. What makes certain that you are in Christ? You believe in Christ. You put your faith in Christ. And when you are in Christ, then you have everything that Christ has and offers, including and especially this eternal life, this resurrected body, okay? So how do you know you're saved? Self-assurance is not what you need. You're not just assuring yourself. The acid test of eternal life is the presence of the Holy Spirit within you. Again, he has given us the Spirit as a guarantee, Eternal security is yours when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. There is this argument among uh, various denominational groups and theological groups about eternal security of the believer. Friend, if you believe you are secure, eternally so. Listen to what it says in Ephesians 1.13 and 14. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So it is absolutely essential 
that you receive Christ. What does that mean? It is the Holy Spirit that brings Christ into you, okay? So it's this is not just a mental transaction. This is not just a mental exercise. This is not merely conceptual. This is existential. It's experiential, right? Yes, you use your mind, but you you open your mind and you exercise the faith that you have within you to lay hold of Christ and to receive him, to receive his spirit. That's why, uh, sadly, it's becoming a less common occurrence, but that's why churches like ours that preach the gospel will encourage people to pray to receive Christ. And I've heard preachers say, and increasingly so in our day, there is no sinner's prayer in the Bible. What are you leading people in sinner's prayers for? Well, of course there is. It's in Luke. There were two men in the synagogue. One was a Pharisee, one was a tax collector. Tax collectors were despised. They were considered sinners. The Pharisee stood in front of the synagogue and said, I thank thee, God, that I am not as other men. I thank thee that I give a tenth of my income, that I do all of the right. I thank thee that I am not as this tax collector. And Jesus said the tax collector was in the back of the room. He didn't even look up. His eyes were down to the ground and he prayed a sinner's prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner a seven-word prayer. And Jesus said he went out of there justified. Don't tell me there's no sinner's prayer. The scripture says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What does that mean? It's a prayer. Call on the name of Jesus. That's a prayer. And whatever words you choose to use, that's a sinner's prayer because you're a sinner and you're calling on Jesus to save you. Nonsense. Stop it. I don't want to hear from all of that anymore. You call out to Jesus to save you. You pray that prayer a hundred times until you're finally assured. I remember when I was a youth minister, I would have kids sometimes in my youth group and they would wear the aisle out. Every time we'd have an invitation, they'd come down to the front, pray the sinner's prayer again. They just didn't seem to be ever assured. You know what? I didn't ever send them back to their seat and say, son, you're already saved. Sweetheart, you've already prayed this prayer 15 times. You're saved. Go sit down. I don't know that. Pray it until you're sure. Pray it until you're assured. I can tell you stories of kids that they were baptized when they were children. They prayed the prayer when they were children. They were unsure as teenagers. I never said what you did or prayed before didn't count or didn't work. I just said, hey, let's start over right now. Let's just do it over right now. And if what they prayed before had, they had faith, you know what? This is just assurance of that. And if it wasn't, then this is salvation for the first time. It's irrelevant. Pray that prayer as many times as you need to pray that prayer. Put your faith in Jesus. Amen? That's what we need to do. These are the kind of people we need to be. You may not know A from B as far as being able to you know, present the right scriptures uh, to lead someone to Christ. But you know what? Do you have Jesus? then you can say, listen to my story. This is my story. This is how I came to Jesus. Would you like the same thing I've got? 
then pray with me right now. And just pray with them. Sometimes I have people pray their own words. Sometimes I lead them in a prayer and give them words because they don't seem to know what to say. But it's faith that saves, not special words. Okay? So that's what we need to understand. Well, we're going to start with verse 6 next week. Um, so I would encourage you to, I'd encourage you to read 2 Corinthians 5, the whole chapter. It's a very, very powerful chapter. And hopefully the Lord has blessed you tonight. God bless you that have joined us online.